from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World... There is a red tsunami overtaking the so-called blue wave. We have more Republicans elected at every level of government coming out of the November election. Of course, the national attention is being drawn to the Senate runoff races in Georgia. Those two races will determine the control of the United States Senate. But the real news is what Republicans achieved in historic firsts. In Georgia, we elected the first Republican Latino to the state Senate, Jason Anavitarte. In Kansas, we elected the youngest woman to the state Senate, Kristen O'Shea. In North Carolina, we elected the first African-American Lieutenant Governor, Mark Robinson, among many other firsts. Here to share more of these achievements is my guest, Edith Jorge Tunyon, the Republican State Leadership Committee's political director. Edith Jorge Yuntunyan is the political director of the Republican State Leadership Committee. Edith, thank you for joining me. And I want to start because I think the Republican State Leadership Committee does great work. And I've worked with it for many years, but it's not really as well known as the Republican National Committee or the House and Senate Committees. Could you take just a minute to describe what the Republican State Leadership Committee does? Absolutely. And thank you for having me on today to to talk a little bit about our organization and how November was quite a success for us. 
We at the RSLC, we pride ourselves on being the only 50-state organization that focuses solely on state-level elections, candidates, and elected officials. So what that means is we engage in all levels of state legislative races, both on the House and Senate side. We engage with our Republican Lieutenant Governors Association, with our Secretaries of State, and also our Agriculture Commissioners, in addition to our JFI, which is our Judicial Fairness Initiative. So think of them as subcommittees all underneath the umbrella of the RSLC, but where the goal and focus is state-level races, that's kind of the name of the game. So from your perspective, Edith, tell us how the country looks today at the state legislative level as compared to the day before the election. We had a really great election evening and, quite frankly, weeks that came after it. We went into this election with one kind of thing in mind, and that was redistricting. As many of us know, the census was taking place over the year, and that is going to really dictate what redistricting looks like in terms of these new maps that will be proposed, in many cases at the legislative level, that will have to be voted on. And depending on what those maps look like will be who's going to be in control for the next 10 years. And that was really what was at stake this time around. And so what we had determined was in 12 states, which were your obvious priority states, your North Carolinas, your Georgias, Pennsylvanias, Wisconsin, so on and so forth. In those 12 states, as little as 42 state legislative seats could have an impact of up to 136 congressional shift at the end of the day. And this was not data that we came up with. We took this directly from sourcing. We used 538. They have a really great resource for what maps can look like in both cases for best case for Democrats, best case for Republicans. So we kind of matched those up. We did the math. And this is a real issue. If we don't start ringing the alarm now and we don't get people to focus on the importance of 2020 and redistricting, we can be in a position where we lose power both at the federal level and the state level for the next 10 years. And so that was what we kind of set out to do. We started ringing the alarms in late 2019 when we rolled out our redistricting plan and platform. We spent all of 2020 emphasizing these are the states where there's key battles that we need to engage in. What are the tangible things that are at stake and at risk? If we don't engage and if we lose this very small number, quite frankly, of legislative seats in these states. And I'm proud to say we came out of this election cycle in a much better place than we were. We were able to pick up up to three legislative chambers, those being both the House and Senate in New Hampshire and the Alaska House, which is a little bit of a funny dynamic there. But we feel pretty confident having engaged in the primary that we were able to secure enough seats to have a working majority on the House level. We were thinking about some of our caucuses. We were able to elect the first African-American lieutenant governor in North Carolina. In states like Arizona, where the odds were really against us, where we had razor-thin majorities, two on the Senate, one on the House, we were able to be strategic enough with the decisions that we made to really maximize on our potential and not let something like a one-seat majority get in the way of us maintaining control of a state like Arizona. That was what was at risk this cycle. I know that we did everything that we could, and we walked away not just in a better place for the party and for ourselves, but in a better place for the nation as a whole for the next 10 years to come. It's really interesting to me because 
all of the news media publicity had been about this democratic blue wave and how they were going to sweep at every level. And I think it must have been a great shock election night to see the gap between what they had promised and what was actually happening. I know in the U.S. House, they really thought they were going to pick up 15 seats, and instead they've ended up losing seats. And I think similarly, there was a sense that they had a real chance to make inroads in the state legislators, and you all turned that back decisively. Could you see that coming? Did you have a sense that the ground realities were different than the news media coverage? I felt good going into the election. I knew we were going to do better than most people expected us to. I'd be lying if I told you that I thought we were going to do as well as we did. There was no doubt in my mind that Republicans were outperforming what was to be expected. And I think you can cough that up to a couple of things. I think Democrats really shot themselves in the foot with this kind of defund the police movement. And quite frankly, it helped us in the suburbs, which is an area that we had been struggling with for the last three, four years. And a big part of it is that message of security, quite frankly. At the end of the day, the suburbs were hurting us because it's a lot of suburban mothers, college-educated voters, that when you really pair up that message with their security, their livelihood, the familial nucleus, it's like a switch goes off. And they start to think about themselves a little more, and there's a little less empathy involved in their voting habits. And so we made it a point to make sure that our folks were talking about that, certainly being very understanding of everything that was happening in the nation and supportive of measures that needed to be taken, but also kind of establishing themselves as the folks that could balance and get the job done, which is to say, we can tackle racial inequality and we can also tackle police reform without a drastic shift to the left, such as defunding an entire police department. And I think the second thing that really helped us and benefited us was, especially with our incumbents, we were proponents of keeping the economy open and doing so safely, of getting kids back to school and doing so safely. It goes back to this idea that we can tackle on more than just one thing at a time and do it well. And so in a lot of these cases, we had legislators going back for special session, passing whether it is state-specific relief packages, whether it was ordinances to keep industries alive and running while also keeping individuals and cities safe. And that varied across the nation and across the states themselves. You're seeing right now in states where Republicans had a decisive kind of prioritizing of individuals, citizens, residents, when it came time to COVID, we won outstandingly. And Democrats just kind of doubled down on this. Everything needs to shut down. We need to be bunkered up. And I think that that really hurt them as well in November. And kind of my last piece to, to all of this of why I think we really did perform much better than expected was, you know, we never lost that sense of interpersonal connectivity and relationship building, which I think was huge. And in states like Texas, Arizona, Florida, our folks were still out there knocking on doors, again, safely, right? There's a smart way to go about things. 
And I think that voters really appreciated that. And I think we've heard a ton of, about this, but there was certainly a sense of fatigue. There was certainly a sense of what are you guys doing to make this better? What are you guys doing to get our lives back to normal? And in some cases, you had some elected officials that were able to point directly to what they had been able to do to make their lives a little better during this pandemic. In other cases, you had individuals that were going out running for the first time that were literally trying to win their vote. And it required them door knocking and having that face-to-face in-person contact. So I would say those were kind of three of the main things that really led to at the local and state level voters giving Republicans their vote and believing that they were the better option this time around. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month no matter what kind of entertainment you love addicted to true crime catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a e crime central crave adventure explore asian action movies on hayah Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. If I understand it correctly... You actually picked up 40 out of 42 seats that were Republican districts held by Democrats. That's an amazing turnaround to have that big a change. Yes. We gave ourselves several paths to how we could keep these seats or how we could expand our majorities or, as I mentioned earlier, be realistic about it. We knew we were going to lose some seats. So how do we offset that? How do we kind of keep that balance? And so one of the paths that we identified were these Trump won Democratic held districts across these 12 states. And, you know, we said if President Trump could win here and he's on the ballot again, 
there has to be something to be said about running a Republican in that district and how you can capitalize on some of those votes. So that was one pathway that we used. In other cases, we kind of proved this notion of candidates matter. And so we went out and we worked with the state caucuses and different independent groups to find the best suitable candidate for that district. And what that meant was diversity. Diversity was very important, not just African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, but adding female candidates to the roster. I think we saw that too at the federal level, at the congressional level. I mean, this was the year of the woman and it certainly was the year of the Republican woman. The last number that we had, and obviously there's still a couple of hundred seats that were waiting to be determined, but we had a 60% success rate on the women candidates that ran at the legislative level. To me, that means that this is a smart move as a party. It's something that I think we've been working towards for a really long time, but it goes back to this notion of having the right candidate for the right district is essentially a recipe for success. And more importantly, one of the things that we would say often too is we knew we needed to do better at recruiting minorities and female candidates to run, but oftentimes we didn't run them in the districts that mattered, right? We would run them in these inner city districts that quite frankly, it was going to be a long shot to begin with. And we thought that made sense. What ended up happening is you never actually had the opportunity to highlight these individuals or quite frankly, get them across the finish line because it was never really a district that was meant to be won by Republicans. What we looked at doing this time around was let's put these individuals in these tier one districts, in these highly contested districts, and let's see how we fare when we kind of shift our strategy a little bit in that way. And I think it proved to be really successful. I'm really excited of what it means for us as a party. This is probably the first year that we can really kind of brag, quite frankly, about what we've done from an outreach perspective. And on top of that, these are the new role models, in a sense, for the party, the folks we can put in front of cameras, the folks we can get on podcasts to talk about why they're Republican, what it means to be Republican. And then people like myself or young African-Americans or Asian-Americans or females, when they hear someone that looks like them, that reminds them of them, that had a similar upbringing to them, talking about why they're Republican, I mean, it brings a completely different type of legitimacy to the table that I don't know that we necessarily had in the past. Well, it's doubly interesting to me because you were clearly outspent by better than two to one by your Democratic counterpart. And yet, despite the money difference, you were able to be effective and really beginning to create real breakthroughs. Yeah, we estimate that they spent about half a billion dollars, billion with a B, which is definitely the first in terms of at the state level, I don't think that this much money has ever been in the mix. That kind of opens up the door to a completely different conversation, which is where did they go wrong? I think they relied on their old kind of playbook. And I think the irony behind that is there's two things that I think are pretty ironic. On the first hand, that face-to-face, that community building, the door knocking, the phone banking, all of that stuff, the grassroots that sometimes we take a little bit for granted. I think the irony behind that is, you know, that is literally how Obama won. And you can ask the RNC, you can ask political director Chris Carr, 
every single one of their field directors has to read the book Groundbreakers. And that is literally how Obama created a ground team and a ground organization to get out the vote and build this grassroots effort like never before. We picked up quickly on that as a party. And I think there's so much irony to the fact that Democrats really didn't do that this time around. And I think it was to their detriment. But then the other thing that I think was interesting was you had Democrats as early as April pushing for vote by mail, early vote. And whether or not you agree with that, what you certainly have to disagree with is if you've been for six months telling people to vote early, to go vote by mail, why would you dump millions of dollars on television, on digital, on radio, two to three weeks out from election day? We've seen this play before, hundreds of times. We saw it in 2019 in Virginia. We saw it again this year. But the difference this year was that by that time, either the electorate already had a pretty good idea of who they were going to go vote for, or quite frankly, had probably already gone and voted. And so this notion that you can dump two, three million dollars in a district, in a state, two weeks before the election and actually make a dent is no longer valid. It was certainly not valid this election cycle. And I think it's something that they really need to reanalyze and take a step back and say, okay, how do we do this more effectively? Excuse me, what's the time window look like? And I think we benefited from that as well because you know, starting this year, we made a promise to, to all of our states that we wanted to spend more money than ever before, knowing that we were never going to spend as much money as they were, but also that we wanted to spend it earlier than ever before. I had read a study late last year by one of these big polling firms that said 78% of campaigns that won had started spending earlier than their counterparts that had obviously lost. And so there was something to be said there about spending early, getting your message across. And I would argue even more so in this election cycle where you had so many things on the ballot, so many races, so many names, you know, a state like North Carolina, you're looking at a ballot that probably had 20 names on it before you even got to the local level. But another excellent example of when using your money, your time, your efforts strategically, you're able to create a space for yourself, able to create a name for yourself and get individuals to vote for you. And I keep using kind of North Carolina as the example, because when you look at the ballot and who won, I mean, you had voters jumping all over the place on those ballots from the top all the way to the bottom. So I think there's certainly something to be said for spending early and just what that means for politics in general moving forward. You had two places I noticed that had remarkable results in Iowa and in the Texas suburbs. Could you comment on those two? Absolutely. Iowa was one of those states that I was worried about because of the money that was being spent. Similarly, a little later in the game, but we knew there had been tons of communications from the DLCC, from some of these other independent expenditure groups saying that they had their sights on Iowa. When looking at the internal data, we did kind of say, okay, there's definitely some seats here, whether they're open seats or incumbent held seats that are at risk. But then we also looked at the inverse and said, okay, where are our best opportunities for pickups and what do those numbers look like? And so what we realized was there were hard decisions that were going to need to be made, 
But in some cases, we were going to have to take the L on some of the incumbent seats, knowing that we had a really good chance and opportunity to pick up some of their incumbent Democrat held seats. And that's exactly what happened at the end of the day. But similarly, Iowa, I think Bloomberg announced around October, maybe 8th or 9th, that he was going to be spending one or $2 million in the state. We're talking about three weeks from election day. I don't know how effective that was, but it certainly perked up our ears. And then in Texas, I think that's probably their biggest failure. We joke about this, but if I was a donor, I would certainly either want my money back or ask for a a very thorough audit of how money was spent. One of the things that actually really helped us in Texas was that a lot of this money was coming from out of state. It wasn't Texans supporting Texans. It was Californians supporting Texas. We definitely echoed that message in hopes that the voters would see that this is not a product of yourselves, of your constituents, of your state. This is a product of liberal states wanting to have an influence in the national scene. And I think that that was very helpful. But I think also in some of these cases, they thought they were going to be able to wipe us out from an incumbent perspective, and they only were able to win one seat, which we were also then able to pick up a seat. So we kind of netted the same. But what that says to me is that our incumbents that were running for re-election did that good of a job, whether it was during regular sessions, whether it was reaching out to their communities and being engaged. And really, they had to, right? Because we are at a point in American politics where you can't get away with being, you know, a hands-off legislator. People want to know what you're doing. They want to see you posting pictures on Facebook, on Twitter. They want to know that you care. It's a very interactive political realm, if you will. And I think it's only going to have to get more interactive because I think millennials and this Generation Z There's this sense of how are you like me? How are you relatable? We've seen it with the Ted Cruz's of the like where you may feel a certain way about him, but you kind of have to agree that he has a really great social media presence. And I think that the younger population enjoys that. But ultimately what it comes down to is how are you relatable to me? What are you doing for your community and why should I vote for you? And I think that our candidates and our elected officials did a really great job making a case for why they should be reelected. Unfortunately for the Democrats, they felt that just money, quite frankly, was going to do the job. Because in Texas, I'm fairly certain it wasn't until the last maybe two weeks that we actually saw Democrats going out and knocking on doors. But if you're not knocking on doors, what are you doing, you know? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. (laughs) 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. There will be a couple states that have elections in 2021. Will the RLSC be involved in those states? Absolutely. So we have New Jersey and Virginia are the big ones for us in 2021. I'm a little biased. I'm originally from New Jersey, so I'm very excited about what that means. When I started here in 2019, Virginia was the name of the game. And unfortunately, they kind of got one up on us in the state, but their margins are so thin. We have a real opportunity and a real chance to pick back up some of those seats and hopefully get us back into the majority. We are going to follow a lot of the same strategic plans that we did this time around, which is try to spend more than ever before, spend earlier than ever before, use the data to drive our decisions. And with that same data, be wise about how our money is spent. That does require difficult decisions being made, but sometimes you have to make those difficult decisions to have the outcomes that you want. And then on top of the legislative level, both states also have lieutenant governor elections. In New Jersey, it's a ticketed election. But in any case, if we have the opportunity to elect another lieutenant governor to our slate, that would be incredibly exciting. And in Virginia, we can also coordinate directly with a lot of the groups in state. And so that makes things slightly easier. But it also allows us to have a little bit more clarity in a sense on who's doing what and making sure that we're giving each other the resources that are necessary or if there are gaps, you know, who can fill what. And so we're very excited about next year. But the thing that we're going to be emphasizing the most and working on the most in addition to these two states is probably the recruitment and training aspect of our organization. As I mentioned, had a really great year as Republicans with going out and recruiting this kind of what a Republican today is. And I think finding some test cases, putting together some best practices and working with our state teams to kind of see how we can capitalize on this, how we can grow this, so on and so forth, that will be helpful to them long-term. And especially again, during a year where 
the states don't necessarily have a lot going on and are building towards 2022 and beyond. Will you also be recruiting for 2022 starting in 2021? Yes, sir. I was on the phone with our Florida team and we were kind of just having a recap of how, you know, the cycle went. They had an excellent, excellent year on both the House and Senate side. And we were talking just about leading up to Election Day. We were talking to folks on the ground every week, if not more than every week, just making sure we had a good sense of what was happening. They had everything that they needed. In any case, we were kind of doing this post-election wrap-up call, and we were also trying to figure out what does communication look like in 2021? Is it once a month? Is it once a quarter? And we kind of realized that as much as we thought it made sense to make it every couple of months, by the summer months, they're already out there trying to get candidates to run so that they can get them slated, ready to go, have everything in hand by January of 2022. So really, at best, we have a six-month hiatus where we are only talking every couple of weeks before it switches up and we're back to talking regularly to see how things are developing in the States. This year will be a lot of growth, I think, for us internally, taking a lot of what we've seen, kind of packaging that up into, as I said, resources for the states. But the role is only short-lived until we're right back up and running. From your experience, as I listen to you, for people who want to be helpful to the Republican State Leadership Committee, the early money actually is vital because it allows you to do the targeting and the recruiting and the training long before we think about an election. My experience, I'll just say, and one of the reasons I've always tried to help the Republican State Leadership Committee is that you all are probably dollar for dollar the most effective of the political committees on our side. And so if people do want to get involved, how do they find you? So it is rslc.gop. We're also on Facebook and Twitter as Republican State Leadership Committee, but you know the easiest is the acronym RSLC. And you're absolutely right, Mr. Speaker. This is definitely a new culture, if you will, of donating, of engaging, of interacting, whether it's with candidates, with committees. I think in the past, what you've seen is there's a big push around the months of July, August, September to just kind of be able to get through the end of the year, but that's changing. That's particularly changing when we're talking about half a billion dollars being spent against us. And what we really want to get across is you certainly do get the best bang for your buck with a committee like ours. As I mentioned, we pride ourselves being a 50-state organization. So we are involved everywhere in the United States. If you're someone that's interested in getting engaged, if you're someone that's interested in helping the future of this party, all politics is local, and we're as local as it gets. Great. Well, listen, Edith, thank you for spending this time with us. It's really amazing. And you all do a great job. Please tell everybody at the RSLC that I say hi and that I'm really, really proud Absolutely. of the way you've helped, I think, in some profound ways, strengthen and help the Republican Party evolve in the direction it had to go in. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. And I'll make sure that I let the team know that you send your regards. And now I'll answer your questions. Thank you for all your great questions we've received. Today, I'd like to answer Gunnar's question, who is 29 and from Washington State. 
Gunner is interested in politics and ran and was narrowly defeated in a city council race. He asked, how can Republicans win going forward with everything stacked against them? His peers are all told in the education system how bad our history was and how bad Republicans are. If the media is against us, if Hollywood is against us, big tech and basically everyone, how can we win? Do we need another contract for America moment? Well, I think having big issues and big themes does help. But I would also say to Gunnar that you just heard with Edith Jorge Tunyon the remarkable achievements that we had all over the country. And they really start with a couple key things. Start very early, go out and go door to door, see everybody, don't assume anybody's opposed to you, and make your case. Whether it's a city council or a county commission or a state legislator, you have to make your case And my experience has been, and I think we just proved this at every level below the presidency in this election, that in fact, Republicans who really went out and worked hard and communicated what they were doing really had remarkable, remarkable impact. So keep your questions coming, and I look forward to answering more questions in the future. Thank you to my guest, Edith Jorge Tunyon. You can read the RSLC's 2020 Top Line Report on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. And our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer a selection of questions in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.